them is this idea of etiquette. Etiquette, as you know, is a set of social norms, a set of behaviors or customs that govern what's polite and respectful in interactions with other people. But there's no one in charge of etiquette. There's no etiquette police out there. Yet people follow these social norms more than some laws. In fact, I bet you don't keep your elbows on the table more than you keep the speed limit. (laughs) And even more amazing is that some of these norms change from state to state, region to region, country to country. Here in America, when you shake someone's hand, I teach my kids to look the person in their eyes. And yet in portions of East Asia, it would be offensive to shake someone's hand and look at them in their eyes. I wonder at what age you can start calling someone man, ma'am, or sir. What age do you stop calling someone ma'am or sir? Should you show up early? Should you show up right on time? Should you show up fashionably late, which you guys all do to church every single Sunday? (laughs) There's dress code etiquette. What should I wear to a wedding? What should I wear to church? What should I wear to that interview business casual? Should I wear a tie? Another area of etiquette, students and kids, you certainly don't love this one, is table etiquette. From which fork to use, to which way you pass the, the dish in a family-style meal, to whether you should cut the piece of bread off the loaf or you should just grip it and rip it and eat it. And to have a little bit of fun and to invite you guys into this idea of etiquette, I came up with a quiz for all of us to take together as we think about the idea or etiquette around formal meals. And we're in the South, and most of you have probably gone to this thing called cotillion. If you haven't heard of it, me either, but I know it's a thing. But uh, I expect you guys from the South and you guys who have gone through cotillion to get 100% on this. Although my wife, both from San Antonio and having gone through cotillion, sorry, babe, she did not pass this quiz with 100% accuracy. So, you just got called out by name. All right, I'm going to put three questions up on the screen. They're multiple choice. You got to play along. You got to raise your hand with the appropriate answer that you think is correct. Here we go. When leaving the table at the end of your meal, where should you put your napkin? This is a formal meal, by the way. Should you put it on your chair, on top of your plate, to the left of your plate, or should you take it home and add it to your collection? (laughs) All right, A, raise your hand. Nice, all right. B, all right. C, good, all right. D, yep, thank you, James, me too. (laughs) C, you're supposed to put it to the left of your plate after a formal meal. Bonus points if you answered on your chair, because when you get up from your meal for a temporary purpose, as if you're going to go to the bathroom, you're supposed to drape it over your chair. Next question, when finishing the course of a meal, where should you place your utensils? Should you put it back in in its original place? Should you put it diagonally across the plate with the handles at the four o'clock position? Should should you hand it directly to the host when they clear the table? Or me, should you hold it on to dessert because you're gonna need multiple utensils to dominate dessert? A, raise your hand. No one, wow. B, raise, oh, there's one or two. Okay, B, good, all right. Um, C, no one, good. D, 
All right, I'm gaining momentum here. All right, answer is B. You're supposed to put them diagonally across your, t- your plate at the floor clock position. Last one, all right. When should you start eating the main course at a formal meal? A, after three or four people are served. B, after the hostess is served. One, C, once the hostess digs in. Or D, you're starting to see a theme. Who cares? Just dig in. All right, A, raise your hand. All right, a couple of you. B, raise your hand. C, that's like everyone. No one. Okay, once the hostess begins eating. Or D, who cares? Just dig in. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, my people. A, after three or four people are served. Ooh. All right. So no lying because we're in church and you can't lie at church. Who got 100%? One person. Did you just graduate cotillion? Because she looks like a, stu- uh, a student or a kid. So, All right. So uh, you can see that the rules of etiquette are complicated. None of us even know them. They help govern how you and I should behave in social settings and social situations. What's funny is no one is thrown in jail for breaking the rules, but they can certainly impact how someone sees you or perceives you or how you might interact with someone else. And as we're going to see in today's passage of Scripture, as we continue on our teaching series on the parables of Jesus, there are rules of etiquette found in the Bible surrounding meals and greeting a host and someone coming over to your house. And we'll see in this story that the rules of etiquette, they're ignored by the host. And they ultimately lead to a powerful interaction between Jesus and a woman. And it moves into this act of true forgiveness. Deep, life-changing, heart-changing type forgiveness. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to jump right in. We're in verse 36. We'll put the verses on the screen for us today. I'm going to read it. Here we go. Uh, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped with them, them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on Jesus' feet. We're going to pause. We're going to camp out here for a little bit of time because this is such a beautiful scene, a beautiful setting. And as you become more familiar with reading the Bible, you know we talk about this idea of context a lot because it's important to understand because we in our daily reading of Scripture might just blaze through this passage and be like, okay, little interesting, little odd maybe. But it's important to pause and look at the setting, the scene, the characters that are in this context, in the story here that Jesus tells so that we can have a better understanding of what Jesus is trying to teach through the parable. The text says that Jesus comes into a Pharisee's house. And you know, a Pharisee is a religious leader of the day. And as we're about to find out, spoiler alert, we haven't read it yet, but the religious leader, the dinner host, is a man named Simon. It was a pretty big deal for, for Simon to be inviting a rabbi, especially someone like Jesus, into his home. In a setting like that, with a guest of that type stature, there were certain rules or etiquette that Simon would be, quote, required to follow as the host. For example, the customary greeting for an honored guest would have been a kiss. If the guest was a person of equal social status, then the host was expected to kiss the person on the cheek. 
If, however, the guest was someone of a very high rank, then the host would kiss the person's hand, not his cheek. To not do this would be like to invite someone over later this afternoon for some barbecue and not saying hello when they got into your house, not giving them a handshake. In fact, just kind of ignoring them when they arrived at your house. Another part of first century Middle East etiquette involved the washing of feet, and this is certainly lost on us here in America. But this was basically mandatory before important meals, kind of like we teach our kids to wash their hands before eating a meal, because feet in that day and age, we can imagine, were dusty. They were dirty. They didn't have shoes. They had sandals that they walked around uh, the, the, the arid desert and climate with. If your guest was of an equal social status, then a servant would wash the guest's feet when they arrived at your home. If the guest was a high-status guest, then the host would kneel down and wash the guest's feet as a sign of respect, as a sign of reverence. And an optional practice at the time was to drip or pour oil or perfume on a guest's head as they arrived Yet Luke tells us, as we'll see in a moment and as he referred to here, that there was no kiss of greeting. There was no washing of feet. There was no anointing the head of his guest with oil. Simon, the host, was breaking every rule of etiquette when it came to having an honored guest at his home. Jesus was ignored. Jesus, the traveling rabbi, was insulted and it seems like it was intentional, a deliberate snub from Simon. And the guests of the party, I imagine, sitting around the table would have been feeling the tension, the awkwardness in the room. I imagine them looking down or looking around, doing whatever it takes not to, avoid, not to have contact with Jesus or eye contact with Jesus or Simon to keep the peace. Another interesting aspect of this story is that in that day and age, banquets were actually, or meals sometimes were uh, kind of a public affair. They would be set most often in the courtyard of a wealthy person's home. And in, in this setting, anyone could walk up and watch the meal. They could listen to the meal, and in this setting, they could listen to the, the traveling, the, the guest rabbi teach the others around the table. If you weren't Invited to the banquet, you couldn't sit at the table, but you could still attend the banquet. You could view and listen from a nearby distance. Be like kind of watching your neighbor at the barbecue later this afternoon over a fence, eavesdropping, wondering why you weren't invited. With a bit of the physical context or the physical setting in our minds, let's turn back to one of the main characters in the story. The woman that had entered the banquet. This woman is not just any woman. The text says that she lived a sinful life, and what we know looking back is that she was likely a prostitute. Because of this, you can imagine, she never would have been invited to a dinner, a banquet, a setting like this. Scholars believe that she had actually probably heard Jesus teaching around the village earlier that day and found out about this banquet and followed him to the banquet in order to stand and listen to him teaching. Something Jesus had taught that day had struck a chord. It might be that she had been reflecting on her own life. Maybe she had been reflecting on how did I end up to become a prostitute? 
Because I don't think anyone plans on being a prostitute. At one point in time, this girl was probably her daddy's little girl, the object of her mother's dreams and hopes. But somewhere along the way for her, everything changed. And she finds herself here at a banquet as a prostitute. And maybe some of us can relate. relate, uh, relate. None of us on our wedding day plan on going through a divorce and having to share custody with our beloved kids. No one takes a drink or a few pills from prescription, planning on becoming an addict. No one plans on having to bury a child or becoming bankrupt. No one wakes up one day planning on going to jail later that day. But somewhere along the way, everything changes. Maybe with this woman, maybe her husband had forced her in to this setting. Maybe her husband had rejected her and this is the only way that she could survive financially. Maybe she had grown callous, her heart cold and hard, not worrying about anything anymore. We don't know how it happened. But however it happened, she hears Jesus. She sees Jesus and something inside of her breaks. She comes to the point of realizing that even she, in the midst of a sinful life, as the text says, she was deeply loved by God. There's a reason she was at the banquet. There was a purpose. Maybe that's why, for whatever reason, you're here today. Maybe your wife or your kids finally drug you here. Maybe it was your parents, or maybe you took a wrong turn. Or at the end of your rope, whatever the reason is that you're here today, God has you here today for a purpose. I believe that. Just like God had a purpose for this woman to be at the banquet 2,000 years ago. As I read and studied this passage this week, I was struck by the courage this woman would have needed to muster up, to even show up to the dinner, to enter into the courtyard, a prostitute among religious leaders, among the high end of society. Perhaps maybe even some of them had been a client. But imagine the courage to follow Jesus from the village to the banquet. Imagine what it would have felt like for her to show up. And maybe some of us don't have to imagine. You know what it's like. The courage it takes to come to church for the first time. The courage it takes to get baptized next week. To join a life group or to go to a 12-step meeting for the first time. It takes courage, but I hope that this week or this today, whatever it is, next month, whatever it is, that you would take some, uh, be inspired by the courage that this woman shows. She gets there. She sees Jesus, and she's simply broken open by love. She watches this religious man, Simon, snub Jesus. She sees that Jesus is there, and he's not greeted with a kiss. His feet aren't washed. There's no oil on his head. She sees Jesus reclining at the table, and she walks up and sets herself at Jesus's feet. Now, in that, in that day and age, there weren't tables like this or, you know, chairs that you sat at. Tables were very low, and people, it said in the text that, that they were reclining around the table. They would kind of lay at the table. 
It's like a kid's dream, right? It's like they kind of on their elbows with their feet away from the table. Like if this is a table here and maybe they sat on their, t- on their stomach or maybe on their side, but they propped themselves up on their elbows near the table. Imagine everyone at the table, let alone at the courtyard, watching this unfold as she walks up to Jesus' feet. They knew her reputation. They probably knew by the looks what she did. And she looks at Jesus, and instead of judgment, instead of ridicule, instead of embarrassment or anxiety, instead of being seen as inferior, she's met and she's seen with indescribable love. She hasn't seen that look in a man's eye in a long time, or maybe even ever. Here's someone that just loves her purely and plainly. He doesn't love her for what she can do for him. He doesn't love just the good parts of her, the religious parts of her. He simply loves every single thing about her. I love to pay attention to her response to this love. It's not planned out. It's not some ritual. It's not something that her parents taught her that's passed down from generation to generation. Her response to Jesus' love and acceptance is real. It's authentic. It's raw. And she is overwhelmed, the text says. She's brought to the point of weeping. And the tears begin to flow. She's ugly crying. And the the tears are flowing onto Jesus' feet. Are they tears of sadness for what she's done in the past? Are they tears of thankfulness because of the kindness and forgiveness that Jesus offers her? Are they tears of indescribable joy because of a whole new life that she sees ahead of her? I think the tears are all of those things, sadness, thankfulness, and joy wrapped up into one moment. Maybe you have teared or cried those types of tears before. She's weeping, the text says, and she lets her hair down. The people around the table know what she did for a living. To let her hair down would have been uh, the worst thing she could have ever done. In that day and age, women wore their hair upright, and when they let it down, it was seen as a very provocative type of move. In fact, uh, women who let their hair down in front of men who weren't their, uh, their husbands, uh, it, it was grounds for divorce for the male, for the husband. She had let her hair down too many times with too many men, but she lets her hair down here for the last time and uses it to dry her tears off Jesus' feet. Despite her reputation, despite her past, despite her status, despite what others might think or say, she then kisses his feet and pours out perfume onto them, which is just as odd as the tear and the hairs and the kissing. But this woman more than likely wore a a jar or a flask full of perfume around her neck. In her line of work, she would often use a drop or two uh, when she was at work. But Luke tells us that she empties the entire thing out onto Jesus' feet. I think it's because she knows she won't need it anymore. She pours it all out. All that she has her whole life, she just pours it onto Jesus' feet. There's no shame in her extravagance. Just love, gratitude, and worship. This is amazing. On one hand, she's 
greeting Jesus in the same way that Jesus, or excuse me, Simon should have met him based on the etiquette of the day. And yet at the same time, she's breaking all the gender norms of the day. She's simply worshiping Jesus. And lost in some of this is the fact that Jesus redeems portions of her past. I love this because he doesn't allow her past. He doesn't allow her actions to restrain him, her from worshiping and serving him in that moment. She's simply worshiping. She uses these kind of sensual actions to worship and care for him. But it's not done in a perverted way. It's done in a beautiful and worshipful type way. It's like the women and the men that serve at one of our local mission partner life choices. And maybe they have gone through an abortion of their own. And yet Jesus has redeemed their past, what they swore they would never tell anyone about. And now they're caring for parents in the name of Jesus who are considering abortion, who have had an abortion. God can redeem your past and use your past to glorify him. It's like the man or woman that spent time in prison, is out on parole, or is out, killed their number, and he's helping men or women coming out of parole, transitioning back into society, helping them get jobs, set up a bank account, set up their resume, all in the name of Jesus. It's like the unfaithful spouse who swore that no one would ever find out, and then the guilt and the shame and, and the spirit moved in their life, and they, they confessed their sins, and they swore they would never tell anyone, and yet here they are years later, healed by the grace of God, and now they're ministering, they're caring for other folks who are going through unfaithful marriages. Whatever you've gone through, I believe this story shows that God can redeem it and use it for his glory. And yet, as we look back at the story, Simon isn't having any of it. Look with me in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him, meaning Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman that she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answers him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I picture Simon kind of freaking out. His reputation as a Pharisee is on the line. He put together this banquet and invites Jesus to teach as the guest of honor, and yet it's going sideways. A prostitute shows up, and she's weeping, and she's crying, and she's kissing, and she's pouring oil on Jesus' feet, and everything's going sideways. And so he says to himself something like, well, I guess if Jesus was a rabbi, if, if he were something special, if he were a prophet, he would never let a woman like this touch his feet. Never let a woman kiss him. But Jesus knew exactly who this woman was, and he knew exactly who Simon was. So he tells Simon that he has something to say. Because Simon had not only judged wrongly the woman and Jesus, there's a sense, there's a sense Simon is trying to elevate himself. His pride is coming to the surface. He's pulling the religious card, giving the religious answer. I mean, you're a prophet. She's a sinner. You should know better. And then Jesus tells this short parable to put everything into perspective. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. 
Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replies, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus says, it's, it's like this, Simon, two people are in debt to the same money lender. Neither of the guys can pay back their loan, and they face the same type of consequences. They're both in trouble. They face prison or foreclosure or bankruptcy or whatever it is back then or something worse, but one of the loans looks manageable. There's a way to get out of it. It's only 50 denarii. But the other guy, he's desperate. There's no way that he can get out of the loan and pay it back. But the money lender calls them in and says, I'm going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. I'm going to forgive both of your debts. Jesus calls Simon out. He poses this simple question in front of everyone. Which of these two guys are forgiven of their debt is going to have his life turned upside down? Which is going to be so filled with gratitude, joy, and relief? Which one is going to be so overwhelmed with the love for the one that forgave his debt? Simon sees the writing on the wall. He sees the point that Jesus is about to make, but he can't ignore Jesus, and he can't ignore Jesus again. So the text says that he responds kind of sarcastically, I imagine. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. And Jesus, probably with a smirk on his face, the kind of smirk that every parent understands when a child gets the point, he says, you have judged correctly. Let's go back to the text. Verse 44 says this. Then he turned to the woman, woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured, poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. Up until now, Jesus had been talking with and interacting with Simon. But now, Jesus physically turns from reclining at the table and he looks at the woman while still speaking to Simon. And he asks Simon, Did you, have you seen the woman? Of course he had, I mean, everyone had. Yet Simon saw a prostitute a woman full of sin, a woman he was frustrated with for ruining his dinner plans. He was a religious man judging this woman by her lifestyle and her outward actions. And so Jesus makes a, great, uh, a declaration, three declarations, four declarations right in a row. He reminds Simon that he, had not only not, that he had not provided foot washing for him, but that this woman had used her own tears to wash his feet and her own hair to dry them. He reminds Simon, that he had not greeted him with a kiss and celebrates this woman's extraordinary freedom with kissing his feet. He reminds Simon and all those that are around that he had not been offered oil for his head, but that this woman had poured out her finest perfume on his feet. And lastly, he reminds Simon and everyone around the table that this woman is the one who had been forgiven much, and she is the one that had demonstrated pure love pure worship through her actions. After Jesus says this, Simon is left wondering and trying to figure out where he fits in the parable. If the woman had been forgiven much and loved much, who was he? Was he the one that loved little and forgave little? 
Maybe he was wondering whose debt was greater. Was it his debt? Was it his sin? Her debt? Her sin? But maybe whose sin is greatest isn't the point of the parable. Maybe whose sin is the greatest isn't even the point of following Jesus. Maybe the point of the parable, maybe the point of the entire Bible is that we're all in debt. We all fall short the glory of God. All of us are like the one with the unmanageable debt, and yet God simply forgives us. He forgives us our debt free of charge. We don't have to do anything to earn it. We simply accept this free gift of forgiveness and salvation from our Heavenly Father. And our response is simply to love others in a great and magnificent way and simply worship our Heavenly Father like this woman. Remember what the text says. It says that Jesus turned towards the woman. Can you imagine her eyes as he turns and looks at her? I imagine their eyes locking. The Savior and the sinner, the mighty guest of honor and the lowly prostitute. Her eyes must have been filled with a lifetime of emotion, of embarrassment, shame, unworthiness, but then instantly acceptance, love, and hope. And I picture Jesus' eyes filled with nothing but grace, forgiveness, love, acceptance, and healing. He says the words out loud that she needed to hear, for everyone to hear. Her sins, which are many, are simply forgiven. He gives her, he gives you, he gives me hope, love, and joy. He gives us a newness of life through forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth today. Thank you for the grace that you give each of us. Some of us, God, are kind of like the Pharisee, kind of like Simon. We're too quick to judge and put others down based off their status. And some of us are like this prostitute just barely showing up and barely hanging on and we don't have much to offer. But God, you teach us through this parable. It's not about what we bring or how much we bring, how great our sin is, how great their sin is. You simply invite us You invite us to recline at the table, at your feet, to worship and serve you. Thank you for the redemption that you offer each of us. We pray these things in Christ's name.